And let's open with that passage that we looked at last week, Luke 10. I think beginning in verse 38. Luke 10, 38, and we'll read down to verse 42, and then we'll jump back in to this lesson together. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be the good portion of our souls, that you would give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink by faith. Lord Jesus, you have said, he who feeds on me will live because of me. And you told Simon Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would minister to us this morning, that you would cleanse us from the guilt of our sin and from the shame of our sin and from the power and corruption of sin. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would stir us up by way of reminder, and that, Father, you would cause Christ to be formed in us. We pray that you would build us up as a people who worship by ourselves and with our families and together as a congregation. We pray, our God, that you would help us this morning to see this all-important aspect of our lives as creatures and as those you have redeemed through the blood of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We started and we looked briefly at this account of Mary and Martha and Jesus coming into their home last week, and and I'm not going to recap all of it, but one thing I want to point out is that while Martha is serving, Mary is sitting. And it's interesting and very important, actually, to notice the way that this text is juxtaposed with what goes before. Right before it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has helpfully pointed out that there's one problem the way most people approach the Good Samaritan. And they know the story. They know all the details. They say, we need to go be Good Samaritans, which is obviously part of what Jesus is answering to the self-righteous lawyer who comes and tests him. But the big problem, Sinclair Ferguson says, is that never happened. Never happened. It was a story. It was a story that Jesus was telling to a man who wanted to justify himself, who wanted to gain eternal life by what he did. And Jesus is essentially saying, if you want life by what you do, you better be perfect. Jesus is himself the Good Samaritan, first and foremost, for our justification. He's the one that comes to his enemies. He lays down his life for them. He cares for them. He provides a home for them. John Newton has an amazing hymn called On the Good Samaritan about Jesus being the Good Samaritan. And then once we're in him, we are to go and do likewise. But most people approach the Good Samaritan and they say the Christian life is about serving. And it is about serving. But it's being served first and then it's serving. And I think the Holy Spirit inspired the account of Mary and Martha immediately after the parable of the Good Samaritan, lest we forget that before we serve, we need to be served. See, Martha is in the act of serving. She's preparing a meal for Jesus. She wants to serve the Savior. And we looked at some of those aspects last week, and that's a good thing, but she's not being served by him. 
Um, I think John 13, where Jesus is in the upper room, it's so significant because Peter says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, unless you are served by me, you have no part with me. So the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So part of us acknowledging the importance of private worship or private devotion to Christ, putting ourselves under the means of his grace, the scriptures, prayer, um, fasting, perhaps, any of those other things that, that God has appointed for us to, to draw near and to grow in our relationship with him. Part of, part of the importance of that is understanding that we need a savior. When we, when we pray in private, when we put ourselves under God's word and sit at the feet of Jesus, we are saying, I, I am not good enough. I do not have the resources in me to obtain righteousness by what I do. We need, we need a savior. Every time we put ourselves in the scriptures, we're saying God is our maker, but God is our redeemer, and we need a savior. And so if we rush to family devotions and we're not saying I need a savior, I need to be saved, saved by the savior and served by the savior, we will inevitably be doing the other things merely out of legal duty. Our hearts won't be right. And we won't be a blessing to our families when we seek to do devotions. And we won't be a blessing to the congregation as we ought. So that's why we've started looking here at private devotion and why that's important. And we've gone through some of these 12 principles that I gave you on studying scripture. Now, let me say this at the outset. We will get to prayer. We will get to other means of grace. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about devotionals, what devotionals are beneficial, what are not. Um, usually if it's the most popular devotional on the bestseller list, you shouldn't read it. I'm just going to put that out there. And if you disagree, you're, you just don't know I'm right. So um, usually there's one exception, which we'll talk about next week. But the reason I started with 12 principles in studying scripture is the scripture's everything. What God do we pray to? The God who reveals himself in the scriptures. How do we pray to him? Through his son, Jesus Christ, we need a mediator. We need a new and living way. How do I know what to pray for? He's revealed it in the scriptures. The scriptures are the totality of, of what we need in one very real sense as believers. We'll talk when we get to uh, corporate worship. We'll talk about how even the sacraments, as important as they are, they can't be performed apart from the scriptures. So that's why... When we do the Lord's Supper, I get up and I read the scripture to explain it, the institution, the words of institution, and then bring to bear some aspect of the text that we've talked about and how it applies. Because while the sacraments are a visible demonstration of the gospel, they must always be accompanied by the words of scripture and the gospel. And so um, this is for this reason that our Westminster Confession starts with the chapter on scripture before it starts with a chapter on God. Very interesting. You might think, well, why not just start with God? I mean, God is God. Who is he? What's he like? Well, we can't even know that unless he reveals it in his word. So that's why we're jumping into these 12 principles. We looked last week at a few, and I'll just very briefly recap. First, we, we talked about the benefit of John Piper's IOUS prayer, pray before you read the Bible, and he gives us those great psalm prayers that, that can really help us benefit the most. Secondly, commit to a regular Bible reading plan, and I told you it doesn't have to be a read through the Bible in a year, just read through the Bible in a year. So it doesn't mean you have to read all of it in a year, 
you need to be reading it pervasively through the year. Three, we talked about accumulating as much biblical knowledge as possible. Fourth, we talked about the two important principles of interpretation. The first was scripture is its own interpreter. So we compare scripture with scripture. The second was we study the less clear passages or the more difficult passages in the light of the more clear passages. So all that is online if you want to go back and listen to it. This morning we want to pick up with a fifth fifth principle that helps you benefit the most in your private devotions, and that is learn the flow of each book in the Bible. This is massively important. Um, one of the worst things that we can, can do is lucky dip. We talked about lucky dipping, I think, last week, where people just open their Bible. Can you benefit from lucky dipping? Yes. You know, open your Bible. There have been mornings where I'm so groggy, I'm like, I don't know what to read. I'll just read this. And it's been really rewarding. And you've maybe had those mornings. But we want to learn the flow of books. We want to know the argument of books. We want to know the outline of books. We want to know the the structure of a book. We want to understand the place that any given passage or passages holds in that book. And there are, there are some really helpful books, and so I just wanted to point some of those out because you might think, wow, that's a daunting task. You could approach it one of two ways. I would encourage both. One, you could read through the book like 20 times, meditatively and prayerfully, and you will figure out a lot of the structure. Or, and or, you could read books that give you the, the structure, that give you outlines, that give you the arguments of books. There are three in particular I want to point out. Um, that are, in my opinion, exceedingly helpful. For both the Old and the New Testament, there's one book you really have to have. It's William Hendrickson's Survey of the Bible. He actually gives you outlines, short and long outlines of every book. Very helpful. If that's all you did, it would probably suffice. So if you're going to start reading through Colossians in your devotional, Hendrickson presumably will give you a short outline longer outline of the book so you can know, okay, I'm in chapter 3. It's still in the exposition. We're talking about union with Christ, talking about the benefits we have in union with him because we died with him and rose with him. Now we're going to have application that flows out of that through the rest of chapter 3. Hendrickson's going to give you a lot of really helpful stuff. Now, one of the hardest portions of Scripture, actually um, maybe next to the Mosaic uh, the books, the, the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Law itself, is the prophets. A lot of people steer away from the prophets, I think sadly, because so much in the New Testament can only be understood in light of the prophetic message of the major and minor prophets. Um, it's a daunting task to take on the prophets, um, especially when you hit Isaiah 12 to 39. And all this judgment on the nations. What do I do with that? How do I understand that? Does that mean I should be God and country? And all these questions arise. And so um, the best book you could get, and if you actually read through this book, and it's difficult, it's not an easy book, but what you can do with it is you can treat it like a set of commentaries. O. Palmer Robertson's The Christ of the Prophets. He actually goes through the prophets in their different periods, so the 8th century exilic prophets or post-exilic prophets. He'll, he'll divide up all the different prophetic 
periods when Isaiah prophesied. And what he'll do in about 25 pages is he'll give you a theology of Isaiah and a biblical theology of Isaiah. He'll explain the importance of exile and restoration, judgment and salvation, and how that relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So you're reading Isaiah and you're like, Israel's being judged, but there's promise of restoration. Is that about Israel? No, it's about Jesus. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how we get all those promises in the prophets spiritually realized to us by faith in Jesus. And that's what the apostles tell us. Palmer Robertson's book is outstandingly helpful. If you read through just the sections on the different prophets, you would probably have read more than almost any seminarian out there. For some reason... This phenomenal book has been massively overlooked. So don't try to read it cover to cover. If you're in Ezekiel, by the way, his section on Ezekiel is phenomenal. Read the section on Ezekiel and then go into the book. And that's going to be a great sort of preface to Ezekiel. So hope that will be helpful. It's not the easiest in certain places. And that, that's another thing I like to tell people is when you hit a difficult section in a book, either press through it or jump over it. Because usually you're going to find, if you press through it, you may be able to make it through when you think you can't. And if you can't and it's just bogging you down, jump over it, because there's usually going to be another section coming up that you will get. So those are some helpful, maybe, tips for you. Um, the last book I would recommend, which is really a phenomenal introduction to the New Testament, is J. Gretchen Machen's New Testament Introduction, also a lesser-known work but one of unbelievable value, probably helped me understand the flow of the New Testament better than anything I read. And you could treat his book the same way as Palmer Robertson's book. So you could use it sort of as a commentary. I'm reading through the book of Acts, and he's going to give you all the theology of Acts in a nutshell. It's really helpful. Easier to read, written on a bit more popular level, but I think those things will help you benefit um, especially getting the flow and the content of a certain book. Um, the next principle I wanted us to consider this morning is study the scriptures in their context. We talked about this last week a bit. As in reality, location, location, location. So in scripture, context, context, context. Context is king. So, for instance, everybody likes, likes to quote, I can do all things... Through Christ who strengthens me. I will not ever beat LeBron James at basketball. I know that's hard for you to believe. I get that. Um, and I know it's no longer King James only. But, but I will never be a professional basketball player. When people tell little children, you can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. That's just not true. There's, there may be a lot of things you can do, but you can't be whatever you want to be. Um, God gives gifts and callings, and we all have limitations, and God, and God equips different people for different things. In the same way, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me does not mean you can be whatever you want to be. In the context, does anybody know the context? Paul is saying... I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I have learned in all things to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Actually, being content in times of want and persecution is what Paul's talking about. Now, 
Obviously, does that have application to being godly and everything else God calls us to? Yes. But context is important. Um, A lot of people at prayer meetings will pray, Lord, we just thank you that you've promised where two or three are gathered together, you are there in the midst. Probably every prayer meeting you've ever been a part of, you've heard someone pray that. And there is a, a truth to that. So this is not meant to be demeaning. In context, in Matthew 18, can anyone tell me what, what that text means? Church discipline. You go to your brother. If he sins against you, if he doesn't listen, you take two or three others. If he doesn't hear them, you take it to the church. Then the elders, if, they won't, if he won't repent or she won't repent, they exercise church discipline where two or three are gathered together. Jesus says, there I am to pronounce judgment. Paul will make that application in 1 Corinthians 5 where he talks about the man who had committed horrible sexual sin, societally, societally perverse sin, and they put him out of the church. And Paul says, when I am with you in spirit and the Lord Jesus is present, put away such a one. So where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst is about church discipline. Is it true that when we're gathered together, Jesus is in our midst? Yes. So at the risk of sounding harsh, I don't want to, I'm just saying it's important for us to understand those specific contexts. And here's why. Because the Holy Spirit inspired those words in that context for that specific reason. And it's dangerous for us. Um, One theologian says, we must never put words into the mouth of the Holy Spirit that he did not speak. It's a very serious thing to put words into the mouth of the Holy Spirit that he did not speak or to twist and pervert scripture. Now, I understand it's harmless. When we thank the Lord for being present with us, there's a truth that accords with the totality of what the scripture reveals. Um, Now, context is king. Um, I want to give you two more examples You're reading through Matthew's gospel. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3 and 4. I'll give you two or three that I've found very helpful over the years. You're reading, you've just read Matthew 3. Jesus has been baptized at the end, and now he's being tempted in the wilderness. There are two contexts that we want to consider to help us get the most out of his temptation in the wilderness. Um, The first would have to do with um, the larger biblical theological context, Genesis to Revelation. Um, Notice verse 1 of Matthew 1. Jesus is said to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. Um, In chapter 2, verse 15... Notice that we read that when Jesus was a baby, his parents remained in Egypt. They took him down into Egypt, verse 14, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Matthew cites Hosea 11.1. That's why it's always good to look up Old Testament references. And that's about God bringing Israel out of Egypt. And he applies it to Jesus going down into Egypt and out of Egypt. So Jesus is the son of Abraham who goes down into Egypt and out of Egypt. He's the true Israel. That's what Matthew's teaching. Son of Abraham. He came to fulfill all the promises given to ethnic Israel. 
He is the true Israel. He goes down to Egypt. God calls his son out of Egypt. And then where does he go? He goes through the water. Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. He goes into the wilderness. Israel went into the wilderness. He goes up on the mountain. God brought Israel to the mountain where Moses gave the law. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. That's the larger context. Now, you're going to say, how in the world am I ever going to get that? You're going to read a lot. And then you'll start to see, wow, that's, there is this big context, the big overarching story of redemption in which these things fit. Then you're going to ask about the more narrow place where these things fit. And I think it's always helpful, as I, I noted at the Puerto Rico conference I went to to these pastors, if you could take the, the scripture chapter divisions and, and verse numbers out of the Bible, it would help you immensely. The Holy Spirit did not inspire them. Charles Spurgeon said some guy on a choppy river in England in the 16th century did a quite choppy job of it. <laughs> so just chopped it here and chopped it there. And sometimes it's helpful transition points and other times it's not. Matthew 3 and 4 would be one of those places where you want it together. The baptism and the temptation go together quite nicely. What does the father say to the son at the baptism? This is my beloved son. So essentially he's saying about Jesus and to Jesus, my son. This is my son, my eternal son. And what does the devil tempt Jesus on? If you are the son, if you are the son. So what is going to sustain Jesus through the temptation in the wilderness is that the father has pronounced this affirmation, you are the Messiah, you are my eternal son. He's pronounced it about him. The devil's going to come and he's going to say, if you are the son, the subtlety of the devil, if you are the son, then do this and do that. Um, Obviously, the temptation account, it doesn't take much for us to know there's another large context, and that is Jesus is the second Adam being tempted in the same way the first Adam was tempted, right? Um, he's the true Israel. He's the second Adam. He obeys where Adam failed to obey. Remember, First uh, John says that um, the devil tempts the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That was true for Eve, right, with the fruit. The lust of the flesh, um, it's good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to look at. And the pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. That's what Genesis says. Jesus is also tempted in the same categorical way. Um, I'll let you work that out on your own as you think about those. So that, for me, is always a helpful thing to get the most out of something, is to learn to read it contextually. Every text of Scripture has a specific context. Now, obviously, the Psalms are a bit unique because they are somewhat self-contained. But even there, they have association with each other and certainly with the rest of Scripture and that big meta-narrative. Um, another place I would show you, turn over to John chapter 2. Very quickly, I won't be as long on this one. John 3, I'm sorry, John 3. And you know the account of Jesus with Nicodemus and you must be born again, and unless you're born again, you will by no means enter the kingdom. The, the Holy Spirit has to sovereignly regenerate sinners. It's not the will of man or the will of the flesh. It's not natural descent, but you must be born again. Um, but notice 
And I think this is helpful, and just as a, this is a very small thing, but I like to point this out. Notice that Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and in John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all, literally in Greek it's men, the King, New King James is a better translation here, he knew all men, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So it seems like an odd ending. He didn't entrust himself to men because he knew all men and he knew what was in man. But if you understand that that's the introduction to what's about to happen in chapter 3, notice now there was a man. You see the flow. He knew all men. He didn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in men. There was a man. Men must be born again. All men must be born again. So just as a little small, maybe helpful contextual thing, you see how learning to read outside of the boundaries of chapter divisions can sometimes heighten and help you understand the flow of something better. Um, One other place, and I won't make you turn there, is 1 Corinthians 15, and there's that very difficult... um, that very difficult portion of scripture, why then are they baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise? And every cult under heaven makes that the- their theme verse. It's like, <laughs> if you could ever have picked a less clear passage to make your theme, theme verse for your cult, it's, it's that one. Um, it is so unclear. What does it mean? Why are they baptized for the dead? And you have theologians lining up through church history trying to explain, what does it mean? Did the early church baptize dead people? Is it post-mortem baptism? And, and could you really baptize someone in someone else's name? Even some really good Reformed theologians, one guy, Robert Canlish, Scottish Presbyterian, actually says that, Um, it's as if the church is an army and one dies, another is baptized and put in their place. And it's like, what in the world? Really? You just did that? That's really weird. But if you read the flow of 1 Corinthians 15 in context, you'll understand that the question at stake is, do the dead rise? The Corinthians have said, there's no resurrection from the dead. Paul has said, if the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen. That's the big problem. And if Christ is not risen, you're not going to rise. If Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is futile. We're of all men most pitiable, and we ought to say, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So resurrection of Jesus, resurrection hope of his people is everything. But before we get to verse 29, why then are they baptized for the dead? Paul uses the phrase the dead in the plural to talk about all men who have ever died. So if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. Christ was among the dead. Why then are they baptized on behalf of or in the name of or on on? the part of the dead, and I think when Paul says that in verse 29, he has in view Christ was among them. We're baptized in the name of Jesus. We're baptized with others who have been baptized in the name of Jesus. So I don't know if that made sense to you. I think that's a much more natural, uh, Jonathan Edwards actually held that, much more natural reading. It's a contextual reading of, of the language and the idea Paul has carried on about 
if the dead don't rise, why then you're baptized in the name of a dead man? Because that was Paul's argument. If the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen. So I don't know if that's helpful to you. I wanted to give you those three kind of cameos real quick. Um, but learn to study the scriptures in their context. That might be the most important outside of reading it fervently. Seven, consider the pronouns. Much quicker, but the pronouns are some of the most important things in your Bible. Um, Oftentimes, you'll hear more knowledgeable theologians debating whether we should put more emphasis on individuals or on the corporate body, and they'll say, well, look, the Bible, God's often addressing his people corporately, but he's also often addressing people individually. And so you really want to learn to to hone in on pronouns. Pronouns are some of the most important things in a right understanding of the Bible. Who's being spoken of? Who's speaking? Why why are they being spoken of? How are they being spoken of? You, we, he, she, it, they. Some of the most important, that's that's self-explanatory in a way. So, eight. Think about nouns and verbs. I know we all couldn't wait to get out of school. I get that. I was the first that couldn't wait to get out of school. If you want to get the most out of your Bible, you have to consider grammar. You have to. Um, Even more so with the Greek and the Hebrew. I had an older Hebrew professor friend. and he was an ancient Near Eastern scholar and wrote a, a grammar of Ugaritic Amharic. He was an Ethiopian missionary. And he said to me once, he said, reading the Bible in English is like watching TV in black and white. And reading it in Greek and Hebrew is like LED or HD. It's, it's you know, technicolor times a thousand. Nevertheless, that's not to discourage anyone because we have good translators who have done good work. And so we have, to, we have to pay attention to things like nouns and verbs, those basic grammatical structures, who's speaking, who's being spoken about, what are they doing, how is the doing being spoken of, is it done, past tense, is it being done, is it talk, does it sound like it's talking about will be done, future tense, those kind of basic English grammatical things are so important. Number nine, ask what this passage says about God. The Bible is first and foremost God-centered. We want to learn and read it in a God-centered way. The Bible is not first and foremost you-centered. Too many people read the Bible. How do I do this? It's not a self-help manual. The Bible is not a self-help manual. Even the Proverbs, which sound like health, like uh, self-help maxims, are co- it's a covenantal document in redemptive history related to things about... David and Solomon and and God's redemptive plan and the redemptive wisdom and righteousness we're going to get in Christ. It's not a self-help manual. The story of David and Goliath is not meant to be, I can fight my giants too. It's not. David's a type of Jesus. Goliath is a type of Satan. It's God showing his redemptive victory. Does it have application to you in union with Jesus? Yes. Does it start with that? No. The Bible does not start with you. It starts with God. In the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) And you said, let there be light. So even the way the Bible starts, in the beginning, God. So the Bible is God revealing himself, his character, his attributes, his works, 
I love Psalm 111. Uh, The works of the Lord are studied by all those who delight in him. So the Bible is about God's works of creation, redemption, and providence. And so we want to come and we want to read it in a God-centered way. You're going to get a lot of God-centered in Romans 9 here in the next couple weeks. A lot of God-centeredness. Okay, 10. Ask how this passage is related to the person or work of Christ. So not only is it God-centered in his triune glory and majesty, it is Christ-centered. Why is it Christ-centered? Because he's the mediator between God and men. I marvel at how many Reformed people have a hang-up about Christ-centered interpretation of Scripture. Well, the Father's as important as the Son. Not as the Redeemer he's not. The Father is not the mediator. Paul says in Colossians, in all things Christ created and Christ redeems, in all things he gets the preeminence. Doesn't mean he gets more worship than the Father. It means you can't read your Bible unless you read it through the lens of Jesus Christ as creator and redeemer. That's huge. Everything you read, you should think, how is this in some way related to the person, work, and reward of Jesus? Because he is the redeemer who fulfills it all for us. Um, lots of helpful books out there to help you with that stuff. Ladies are doing Nancy Guthrie, phenomenal. Um, lectures by a man named Edmund Clowney I find very helpful. I don't like all that he has written or said, but his stuff on um, a Christ-centered interpretation of Scripture is very helpful and I think really unpacks Um, And if you just want to read the Bible, Jesus says it's all about himself in Luke 24. He says it's all about himself in John 5. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says the whole of the Old Testament was about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Every part of it, not just the single prophecies, all of it. So get excited about that. It will change your life forever. You will want to be closer to Jesus and you'll want to know him more and you'll want to walk more obediently. So that's huge. 11, ask what this passage says about what God requires to us. We don't want to just say, how's this about God? How's it about Christ? Well, that's great. There's always an application then, right? The Westminster Standards say that the Bible is about who God is and what he requires of us. I would put in there what he's done in Christ, but I think they mean that in who he is. But that's a helpful paradigm in reading the Bible. Okay, what does God now require of me? in all the various multifaceted ways that you're going to get that. Does the passage call us to faith and repentance? Does it call us to carry out a specific act of faith in response to the gospel? Does the passage tell us how we should live in light of the mercy that we've received from Christ? Does it warn us about turning away from Christ? Does it tell me how I ought to treat those in the church? Does it tell me how I ought to live as one united to Jesus in my marriage? Does it tell me how I'm to use my tongue as one who's been purchased with the blood of Jesus? Does it tell me? What is it telling me? So you want to read the Bible in all those ways. Finally, and and arguably as important as read the Bible fervently, read it in context, memorize as much scripture as possible. The more scripture you have memorized, the more you're going to benefit when you read the Bible. Because you'll read a portion of scripture and you'll be like, wait a minute, I read that over there and this verse says that and that coincides. That sheds light on this. So the more, the more versed you are in the Bible, the more you meditate on it and memorize it, the more you're going to benefit from it. That's just a, that's a, just a no-brainer. So uh, helpful things in memorizing as we close this morning. 
I used to pray that the Lord would help me memorize scripture. I, I wanted, and he answered that prayer. But one thing I did in the early years was I used to get index cards out. And I would write out five or six verses out of the chapter or whatever I read that morning. And I'd go through my day and I'd be working and I'd be reading them. So if I had a break, I'd be reading them. If it was in my car, I, had, I used to tape them on my dash. So when I was at a light, I should still do this. I would look down and read it. And that, it becomes part of you as you're seeing that all the time. So the index card route, I found very helpful. Maybe you all have other, you know... Good helps and whatnot. 